The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Kay Cleave. Kay began her career as a teacher in Australia before heading off to travel the world. She earned an MFA in writing from the University of San Francisco and a PhD in creative writing from the University University of Adelaide. From 2008 to 10, she was a research scholar at UC Berkeley examining the connection between mindfulness and healing grief. Her first book, Once More with Feeling, How to Manage Your Emotions in the Workplace, was published in 1996. And recently, she wrote a children's book, A Kangaroo Tale, about the power of mindfulness She's completing a book of poems about mothering and loss, as well as working on her documentary, Finding Freedom Through Grief. Welcome, Kay. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm hoping we can start with just um, filling the listeners in about um, your loss the loss you experienced and um, maybe a little background on the life you were living when that happened. Just share your story a bit. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, you know, this it's the 18th year of my daughter's death and she was 18 when she died. She was my only child and um, everything just shattered. I was actually... I thought I was in charge of my life. I was uh, uh, running my own business as a corporate trainer and um, public speaker. And, uh, you know, my daughter had finished uh, year 12 at the Waldorf School and headed off for a year, um, like a gap year, and went traveling uh, to um, Melbourne with a girlfriend. And unbeknownst to me, she met a, a young boy and he was uh, taking heroin. And, and during that time, heroin was very sheep on the streets. In fact, there's been a, a big uh, um, police corruption that's all come out since in that year. Um, and so my daughter, you know, used heroin um, very briefly and uh, overdosed. So everything, as I said, just fell apart. And it was, uh, she was, she was kind of my identity as a mum and uh, we were close, we had a sparky relationship but I really didn't know how I was going to keep living or if I even wanted to. Mm. That's that's uh, what comes to my mind when I imagine 
uh, I've had other types of losses, not a child. When I imagine losing one of my kids, that would I want to go on question is definitely a part of how I imagine it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a really hard thing for other people, particularly parents, to be able to support a parent who's a child has died and and many of my friends tried but it's it's such a you know you hear it's every parent's nightmare and I could see the fear on people's faces like what do I say to Kay and of course there's nothing that's going to make it better but being able to learn to just be with someone in grief is is what you need to do but it means you've got to have worked or at least to have faced your own fears around this. Absolutely. You know, that's a perfect moment. If you wouldn't uh, wouldn't mind sharing your poem, They Tried, because that oh. speaks so eloquently to what you're talking about. Yep. And, you know, just to say again, I was so deeply, I was so well supported. But I do remember saying that I needed people who could stay, who would support me. I needed them to believe I would get through this somehow because I didn't know how I would get through this. But anyway, oh, that's, you, uh, that's a really interesting point. Uh, let me just say before you read it, that's an interesting combination, isn't it? You don't want anyone to tell you it's a, you know, any kind of platitude about it's, mm-hmm. it's okay or it's going to be okay, but you do need them to hold that faith for you. Yes. Yes, because many, many people, uh, you know, not uh, not meaning to, but said things like, oh, my God, I don't know how you're going, you know, how you would cope. I don't know how I would survive or go on with if my well, something happened to one of my children, which, of course, isn't one bit helpful. But, um, uh, you know, these people, if, if they can just hold the space somehow, which, of course, as I said, means having to do the work themselves. Yes. So let's hear the poem. Mm-hmm. It's called They Tried. Parents shouldn't bury their children, I heard my friend say. It's every mother's nightmare. They gathered around me, carefully as ironing pleats in a skirt, and offered words of comfort, like untested hors d'oeuvres on a platter. It should have been me, my mother cried, as if death, a gracious hostess, served those who waited in line. The brave cradled my eggshell body and listened while I howled. Some washed dishes, answered the phone, arranged fresh flowers in vases. Others baked gluten-free cakes, listed the ingredients on their homemade casseroles. And when nothing was left undone, brewed another pot of Earl Grey. The husband of a colleague refused to come inside after my daughter's body came home. But he rattled his mower down the driveway and cut my patchy square of lawn. They tried. They tried and they tried. I, that captures so well that feeling of n- nothing to be done, but what people do matters, and the way that they do it matters. Mm. Um, nothing mm. to change, but still, I get the sense that that you could still recognize the gift of presence. Mm. 
mm. but mm. but not uh, but not experience their uh, wanting to make it better as helpful at all. Mm. I did, and and I still get choked when I think of that man who I didn't even know his name. I didn't know him well. He was the husband of a colleague, and he was, you know, he just didn't know what to do, but he regularly came and cut the lawn for in the first year, and that's what he could offer, and uh, it still touches me thinking about that. So he kept that up for an entire year? Mm-hmm. Well, until I left Australia. Um, I was, uh, you know, when after my daughter died, a friend drew up a roster and um, they, I had a friend, I had friends come, uh, people filled out their names. So every morning someone came, every afternoon someone else came and every evening a third person came and they did things like I've just said and that, that went on until I left Australia, as I said. It was amazing the support that I received. What's what's really what really stands out to me about that is that they whether they had previous experience with profound loss or they didn't there was some recognition this doesn't go away quickly mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. that they kept showing up over quite a long period of time compared with how long um people usually uh report that their that their friends keep showing up and then, you know, a year, the, on into those uh, long stretches. They did. You know, one, one good friend made chicken soup and turned up every Wednesday at lunch. And um, I, I was also part of a, a big co-counseling community. So there was a lot of people there who knew about counseling and, uh, you know, uh, being able to deal with their emotions. So I think that also helped. Uh, that there were people that could be there with strong emotions. They they had kind of had the introductory course at least. To mm-hmm. <laughs> and this this interested me very much that you had what you were co- having a successful biz- business in was emotions. In mm. a sense, you'd already written a book about that you called "Once More with Feeling." Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, uh, you know, Stephen Levine uh, said once in my hearing, um, there's no new feeling in grief, but the intensity, the volume is entirely yes. different. And yes. so yes. even even though you'd, you'd had, had that, you were completely undone. I absolutely, and you know, I was uh, I was running workshops, and I uh, they that was before emotional intelligence was even coined as a word by Daniel Goldman, I think. Um, so I was you know uh, doing these seminars in corporate in uh, businesses where emotions really weren't um, uh, something that was welcomed at the time. I did get, you know, it was, a, it was sort of the cutting edge in a way to bring these ideas into business. But the, the thing about grief for me is that, well, one, this has been now an 18-year journey where grief has really been my uh, major uh, work. And what I see is, you know, for we, that we all need to develop a relationship and befriend our grief because we all have it. 
And I think, you know, I do think we're a nation of, of uh, grief uh, where there's all sorts of things that uh, I know I'm going to be grieving when the Obamas leave the White House. You know, uh-huh. and uh, uh, as I'm sure many others, and uh, you know, just the grief of growing older, but we don't deal with it. And I know when my daughter died, the intensity, like Stephen Levine, I remember reading some of his books at the time that were really made a difference to me. But it, it's not just the grief, uh, the pain of the grief. There's also uh, the mixture of anger. I was so angry that this had happened mm. to my teacher and to me. Why her? And, um, you know, there, there was a fury, and I think it was this, she'd been stolen from me, and I couldn't do anything about it, and I felt I was a woman in control of my life, as yes. we all walk around thinking we are, you know, a lot of us think we are. And so there was the anger. There was also incredible shame that I had somehow, and guilt, that I had somehow failed. I had, you know, parents are meant to protect their child and I had let her die. And so the stories that, the punishing stories in my head um, went on for years. And, and the shame, I remember sometime in that first year I was in a supermarket mindlessly pushing a trolley and I saw another parent, I didn't know her well, at the end of the aisle and I was so filled, overcome with shame that I was exposed. Here was this mother who'd let her child die. And um, there's also a lot of shame and isolation about just being this broken, wounded sort of victim, I think, in our culture anyway. And I remember just fleeing the store, leaving the groceries. I mean, I've got many, many stories like that. But um, uh, along with the grief, there's an incredible amount of shame, guilt, and um, uh, anger. And I haven't met anyone who has had a loved one die who hasn't felt a certain amount of guilt. Maybe they should have made it that last phone call or, you know, hadn't said that unkind thing. I think that guilt is part of grief. Well, I actually think uh, that in some sense it's easier for us, for many of us, to contemplate that we did something wrong than that we are this out of control. I that, absolutely agree. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that your daughter died and there was nothing you could do that's almost worse yeah yeah that I, life I, life's terms are that brutal mm-hmm. i think i think for us all to really um embrace and you know really take in the fact that life is so random and that this could happen to anyone anytime and i think that's terrifying and so I absolutely agree with you. I think we'd rather hold on to the fact we could have done something, which really is keeping that illusion of control going. Absolutely. And then, the, you know, in terms of this uh, shame you were experiencing, I, I think that that would be true of pretty much any parent who lost a child for any reason. For instance, I had a guest whose son died of cancer and she experienced that she had nothing, you know, you, you can't construe a way in which she had any responsibility and yet it was a part of of that, um, uh, of yeah. what went on in her head about it. So I mm. agree with that. But I'm also wondering, do you think there was any 
aspect that was about the way that she died, that somehow you should have done something so she never tried drugs or, I don't know, something particular mm. to that part of it? Oh, I definitely, uh, absolutely, I think. And it's a cultural thing, too, that if your child gets into trouble or is, you know, starts to use drugs, then somehow you as a parent, um, uh, you know, you should have seen this. Or um, So I think there's a whole cultural thing as well around drugs and around suicide. If your child committed suicide, I think that's another probably even a heavier kind of, uh, you know, punishing of oneself. But, um, mm. yes, I do. But, but I, I agree with you. If Catherine had died in a car accident, I would have beaten myself up that, you know, I should have warned her more about that. Or cancer, I should have fed her more organic food or, you know. <laughs> we find our ways, don't we? <laughs> Which is, seems ridiculous now, but I know I would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's a little different because perhaps we imagine, you know, some way that uh, other people are thinking we it more, that we should have done something when it's something like uh, mental health issues or drugs or whatever, when in fact, people that age are experimental. Yes. That, Yes. That's that's sad but true. Um, it's got yeah. a it's got also an upside, but that side is the danger of it, isn't it? Absolutely, and and you know I'm a risk taker, and I encourage my daughter to take risks, particularly as a young girl. I didn't want her timid and fearful, so I raised yes. her as a sassy young woman. And um, uh, but I but I do think also that there. Uh, you know, that would would come from certain parents, uh, kind of a judgment. And I think, again, right. the judgment is that if, you know, if I don't do that, then I can keep my child safe. If I will be... You know, Absolutely. Be Absolutely. So That's a good place for us thing. to go to break. If, if I don't do what she did, I'm safe. I think that really yeah. captures it. Listeners, you can, you can find links to my website and social media and my email at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Kay Cleave at wwwkaye C-L-E-A-V-E dot com K-Cleave dot com Be back soon Become our friend on Facebook Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America As we age, our health can decline. For some, it's a slow, even process, while for others, it can happen at a much faster rate. The health decline can start in people as young as their 30s. Did you know a lot of age-related diseases can be prevented, reversed, or eliminated? It's true. You'll find out more every week on Healthy Aging with Dr. Denise Bogard. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. It's your life. Keep it going well. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. 
Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kay Cleave, who found her way to a sense of freedom after grieving the loss of her 18-year-old daughter, Catherine. But we were talking before the, the break, Kay, really about the worst parts of it, the, the guilt and, and recrimination that goes on for anyone in grief, but even more when you're a parent and it's your child. And during the break, you were... Uh, saying that originally you thought that must have been her first time, then you found out it was not, and having to assimilate all of that um, information and coming to terms with just that part of it must have been quite a hard thing to do in the midst of deep grief. It, it was. That the, that first year, I was still, when I look back now, I think I was in total shock for the first year at least, probably longer, and I still think there's some PTSD, which I can talk about later, but um, I know that first year I had to find out everything possible uh, that had happened, and uh, because Catherine left uh, for that year in uh, Melbourne, and although she came back a couple of times, we, uh, you know, she had adventures and did things, and she told me things that I, she thought I could hear. And, of course, there were all sorts of things she didn't tell me. And uh, when I found out that um, uh, I did know she'd met this boy, um, she told me in the last six weeks of her life. And um, I didn't know uh, other than his name. And in my memoir, I call him Holly. And um, that uh, I didn't know. They were, they were taking heroin together. But... Um, after she died, and I, I was just, as I said earlier, I had so much anger but I, and grief and guilt and everything wrapped up in this tight, tight ball. And um, oh, before I tell this story about forgiveness and meeting the boy, I just want to say there was a point along this journey, and I'm not sure how far into it, a few months after my daughter died, and I was sitting on the couch at night, and I was alone, which was unusual because, as I said, I was very, very uh, well surrounded by and supported by people. But this particular night, I was alone. It was in the middle of the morning, actually, about two in the morning, and I was sitting on the couch looking out onto the garden through the glass doors, and it was uh, nearly full moon, and it was um, bright. I could see the 
at Catherine's old trampoline on the lawn and the um, uh, the apricot tree was there with its scrawny branches because it was winter, so it lost all its leaves and underneath the, uh, the apricot tree was this stone laughing Buddha that I'd had for many years. And I was sitting looking out and at, at that time I had no idea how I could survive or go on without being a mum or without my daughter. And I, I just read a lot of books about parents whose child had died, trying to redefine myself or get some way through. And I remember this particular moment where I had a clear thought that I knew I had a decision that I could either decide to just curl up with this pain and be a bitter old woman and which is, I, I felt, I just felt this ball of pain and anger and, and grief. And, or I knew there was another way that I could somehow, I didn't know where this path would lead, but that I could face this grief and somehow open to it and just grieve. And uh, as I said, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that was the path that I needed to take partly because of who I am, but also I know my daughter would have been so cross with me if I had gone around the rest of my life, um, you know, uh, broken over her death. She would have been incredibly cross. So <laughs> I just, this, you know, I just, um, I took that path and that really uh, led me uh, to San Francisco, um, which is another whole story. But I'll, I'll just tell you in that first year, so after I made that decision, I did everything I could to find out how did this happen. And um, the, the big thing was trying to forgive uh, everyone. It, forgive my daughter. I was so furious at her for doing something that's so of stupid. Course. I was furious at her friends that didn't tell me what was happening. I was furious at the drug uh, you know, lords who are making millions of dollars off of children's lives or the drug street people selling drugs. It was endless and, and furious at the boy. So um, I made a trip to Melbourne uh, to try and meet him. And uh, I had found out his address from the police officer. And um, uh, I, fortunately, he wasn't there. I turned up, knocked on the door, and I'm so glad he wasn't there because I don't know what I would have done. I was so angry. And I went again a few months later to see him, and I'd rung him, and he said he'd be there. And um, I turned up, and he wasn't. And uh, I heard, and I'm glad he wasn't. So by the time I ended up going a third time, it sounds like one of those stories, isn't it, the third time, but <laughs> it was just before the year. Um, so it's been almost a year, and I got to the house, Un, uh, I didn't contact him this time, but he opened the door and I can remember this wave of, you know, facing this young man who I believed uh, had killed my daughter. And the police officer said it's likely he injected her, but he never, he never acknowledged that. And I was looking at this young man and fortunately I'd done an incredible amount of work on myself and I went there with an open heart. I wanted to forgive him. I wanted to have a kind heart and I took photographs of Catherine as a little child in case he wanted to see them and he invited me in and it was this squalid house like a squat and uh, he he offered me tea and I said yes and I had no intention of drinking anything in that house but he said I'm sorry I don't have milk and I said that's fine and I sat on this rickety old armchair 
And it was actually a very beautiful meeting. I was there for a couple of hours and um, it, it, it was so healing. He um, told me about Catherine. He said she was, wasn't hooked on heroin. He said she, it was a big adventure for her. He said she was very optimistic and she was trying to help him come off um, heroin and he, he had got hooked when he had a car accident apparently and it had a lot of pain and, and started taking painkillers. And um, it, it was it was very touching. I learned a lot from him and I did. My heart, there wasn't any anger there. At one mm. point he rushed in the room and said, I'm so sorry, it's my fault. And I showed him the I said, do you want to see some photographs? And he came and sat by me and it was very tender. And by the time I left, I said, I've got to go. And I gave him my address and phone number. And I said, I'd like to see you again if you get clean. Because he said he was going into detox. I haven't, by the way, ever heard from him. But as I left, he said, wait. And he pulled off his neck a necklace. And he dropped it in my hand. And it was still, it was metal. It was still warm in my on my palm. And it was a, a necklace with the six rainbow rings. And that Catherine had bought this. For me, because I was going to visit her, I, I had my ticket and everything planned to visit her, and she died the week before. And he said that she bought this for you, and I've been—I took it off her body, and I've been wearing it ever since. So it was an incredible gift that now sits on my altar with Quan Yin and a whole lot of other uh, mementos. And um, I think it was a way of Catherine. Saying, um, because I, when she was six, I got involved with a woman, and um, so she was raised in a gay family, which wasn't easy in Adelaide in the 1990s and early. It's not like uh, San Francisco now, and uh, she struggled with that. But I think it was her way of, um, you know, saying it's okay. And uh, so I had this necklace that I would never have got if I had, you know, been so angry at this young man. Mm. I I think that's really uh it really stands out to me that it was your third visit that there's just no way to rush such a such a thing and no. and it ha- it has sort of a life of its own but I'm also really struck by you making the decision and I've heard this before in many contexts but honestly particularly when people lose a child this sense that um you you can't you have to live in honor in some way that yes. that it would it would be a dishonor of that child to give up um Absolutely. but that means yes. really having to go to the pain doesn't it and i wondered mm. if you'd read hand against the glass because when when i read that poem i i really felt it um, I, I could imagine that that's the kind of uh, thinking I would have and feeling I would have uh, in my own case. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I will. It's called Hand Against the Glass. What if I'd known that Sunday morning in June when I drove the girls to the bus station, streets shiny from overnight rain, the only sound in the car, the slish, slish of water off tires. What if I'd known when I glanced in the rearview mirror, saw my sleepy daughter slumped against her backpack, mascara smudged, looking like a street kid in her grungy clothes and cheap metal bracelets, 
What if I'd known when I pulled to the curb and a raven high in a gum tree cawed, a mournful ah, 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 as she rummaged through her pack, wailing, I can't find my wallet. My heart would have split open like a melon. I would have savoured the dimple in her chin, her crooked right eye tooth, and eyebrows plucked pencil thin, arched like the wings of a bird in flight. I wouldn't have snapped. We haven't got time to go back now. She held up the wallet and said, softly as butterfly wings, don't be like that. The coach was delayed and we waited on grey plastic seats. A homeless woman, face sallow in the fluorescent light, ankles bloated like a puffer fish, hawked into a rag and I gagged. Shall I go? I said. My mind already back home, stripping my daughter's bed, tossing sheets in the wash, drinking in the silence with a mug of sweet chai. No, she said, wave me goodbye. We hugged and I kept her in sight as she bounced down the aisle, found a window seat and scanned the crowd outside. Her nose stud and bleached crop hair made her look harsh, but when she spotted me, her face lit up like a firefly. The coach reversed from the parking bay, flashing orange warning lights, and we gave each other our signature wave, the curly three stooges one hand flapping under the chin. Then I watched the coach lumber away like a weary armadillo, blinded by the last image, her hand pressed against the glass. I want to mention here that you are writing a full book of of lost poems and you're calling it Cartwheels of Love and Loss, mm-hmm. which I which I think is quite a title. Thank because you. Well, we do get we yeah. do get turned around and upside down, don't we? We do, and also Catherine was uh, and myself. We were involved in a circus uh, children's circus school called Sir Kids. So we, you know, cartwheels are a lovely um, sort of metaphor for yes the grief but they were also we can both we both did cartwheels together (laughs) Mm. um we're we've just got a couple of of minutes left until our next break and i'm i'm wanting to come back and talk about all the things you've made of your grief since your daughter's death we've we've got a very good picture i think of what that was like uh at the time and as you tried to sort out through your own emotional and I guess spiritual filter what had happened. But I'm so aware 18 years later, and I resonate with this because my my wife's been dead about 20 years, uh, so it's a similar time frame. How many things in your life connect to that loss? Um, For instance, the children's book, you wrote that that is dedicated to her and I know you have an upcoming trip to Nepal um, to support a school there is that correct uh, well I've just come back the, the first trip I have actually just come back from Nepal where I um, uh, I raised money 
to, um, uh, with the help of uh, many, many of my uh, generous friends. So uh, I found out that through a young Nepalese friend here called Prakesh that uh, he's uh, on a mission to build a school let's, in the remote let's... area. Let's go into the details when we come back, but I just wanted to to kind of set it up for for our last segment because I'm I'm fascinated by that as an outgrowth of your loss because of course that's a big part of what this show is about. So when we get back, let's talk about that. And yep. listeners, you can go look for either of us. Uh, you can look for me at my page at Voice America, the Good Grief page, or at my website, weatheringgrief.com, and you can find Kay Cleave at k-cleave.com. Be back in a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As we age, our health can decline. For some, it's a slow, even process. While for others, it can happen at a much faster rate. The health decline can start in people as young as their 30s. Did you know a lot of age-related diseases can be prevented, reversed, or eliminated? It's true. You'll find out more every week on Healthy Aging with Dr. Denise Bogard. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's your life. Keep it going well. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Kay Cleave. And we were talking before the break, Kay, about uh, all of the aspects of your life that have have been informed by that loss, which, of course, I resonate with because, (laughs) obviously, a lot of what I do has to do with a big loss in my life and how that transformed me. But could you kind of... um, 
summarize the different ways that your life turned corners after that as you decided to continue living and and even live with your daughter's honor in mind? Absolutely. I think the, the, the beginning was after making that decision and deciding that I wanted to leave, um, I needed to leave uh, Australia to get, uh, kind of get some, uh, you know, uh, space from all what the memories, I guess, not that they go away, but coming to, I decided to come to San Francisco and I did an MFA here, but I also was drawn here because I read A Path With Heart by Jack Cornfield and I was drawn to go to Spirit Rock. And mm. it was, there was something really refreshing about coming to San Francisco. I'd actually heard somewhere that you, people come to San Francisco to reinvent themselves. And in a way, you know, it's like there was a real freedom coming here and nobody knew. So I didn't have to be constantly this woman in deep grief. And I remember the first time someone said when I was here, do you have children? And I said, no. And I, I said no that it was somebody I didn't think was going to be, uh, you know, a following up uh, relationship or friendship. And it, there was a... There was a sense of disloyalty, but also a sense of freedom. I didn't have to tell my story every time. So um, coming here, I was uh, one of the things after Catherine's death is, where is she now? And what does it mean? You know, we're all going to die. What, what happens to us? Do we live on? And um, I was drawn so much to those questions. And there was many, many people I saw and spiritualists and I did I went to Sweet Honey in the Rock, um, Ise Barnwell's Singing Through Your Grief. I did so many things. Uh, the Zen Hospice, uh, they ran some courses and there, it was just this hunger to find out, well, what does all this mean? What's our life about? And um, so the spiritual learning to be able to uh, the whole Buddhist perspective really resonated with me that the Buddha said they're suffering. Well, I know I found that out, you know, I didn't actually know. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I mean, it seems ridiculous. Yes. I was in my, uh, beginning 50s and I didn't, it hadn't really hit me. But there's suffering and then there's a cause of suffering and then he said there's a way out, there's a path. And so I was so hungry for that and I had to learn how to sit. With these feelings, I um, and uh, for initially I could sit for a moment without being so overwhelmed by them. But over time, and with a very good support at Spirit Rock, I did many many retreats. I got to I learned to be able to sit and what, with these feelings. And what I found is that the intensity they change, they ebb and flow, and they do pass, and then they come again like another wave. But there's a, there's an incredible building of resilience to be able to just stay and mm. so that was a big part of my practice was um, learning to face these feelings learning to the, the forgiveness that I spoke earlier about of course the biggest hurdle was forgiving myself and that's an, uh, an ongoing practice that I still can get caught by you know one of the punishing stories and I've learned to be much more gentle and I'll just speak to myself and say, sweetheart, you don't have to, you know, follow that thought. And <laughs> so that, that continues to be a practice today. But um, uh, the other one, too, that's been very important is gratitude, is that I'm very aware of the deep 
the, the gratitude that I have for the things that I have in my life. And on days, in the early days, of course, so I, I would always make myself think of what the three things that you're grateful for. And I know many, many people have talked about this, but I actually used to do this with my daughter when she was little and we were sitting around the dinner table. At the, we would say, what three things you're pleased about today? And so it was a practice I, I did then, and I still did. After she died, um, it was a big, big struggle. And uh, sometimes I could just say, I got up, you know, or um, I woke up. The even. sun rose. Thich <laughs> Nhat Hanh talk, talks about the non-toothache day, you know, and yes. to be grateful today, I haven't got a headache or something. So the gratitude practice is a, a, a very big practice of mine and, and still is. Um, but I think that the other thing that, uh, and, and I know it's a part of a Buddhist philosophy is service, is being able to give to others. And that's been a, um, a, a since Catherine died, uh, my, um, you know, that's been a big thread of what I've done. So I've done a lot of volunteer work. I've, you know, I've taught things like swing dancing and, and yoga classes and volunteered things that I do well. Um, at the last volunteer, I was teaching um, poetry down at Salinas Valley State Prison. That's a maximum security prison. And that was, and whenever any service I've done, I've always got as much as I've given. Um, but it's all kind of been in shaped. But I feel Catherine with me. I see the things that I say, the perspective I have, the way I am in the world has been very, very shaped by me giving birth to a child, raising a child, loving a child, and having to let her go. And um, and she's still there. I still have a relationship with my daughter. It's just very different than it was. Very different. But she's still very much a presence in my life. So, so the last thing that happened was this year, I, I mentioned earlier, it was the 18th anniversary of her death, and she was 18 when she died. And I know that, I also know 18 in the Jewish um, uh, custom isn't a significant number. But a friend of mine whose child died said that when, her ch- when the, the year reached the year her daughter died, which her daughter was 19, I think, it was, it was a significant year that Catherine will now have died longer than she lived. And I wanted to do something special. And um, it's a long story how this, this, this little story came to me just when I was walking around the lake, which I do every day, and I jotted it down, and I thought it seemed like a, a, you know, a sweet story, and I kept working on it. And then I was invited to go to Nepal because I'd met a, and a young Nepalese man whose parents had died, and my child died, so we kind of connected. And um, I uh, found out that it cost $10,000 to build a school in Nepal, and one of his dreams was to build 10 schools in, his, in the very remote region where he grew up, where there's no schools, and he'd already built two. So I raised $10,000 for Catherine's school, and I've just come back from Nepal where I saw the site where Catherine's school will be built. And that gives me a lot of pleasure to think there's a whole lot of Nepalese children getting an education that they wouldn't have got and all in my daughter's memory. You know, there's this very familiar aspect of what you're talking about that uh, 
there's sort of an organic quality to these things that come out of grief sometimes. Like you didn't think, I should go build a school. (laughs) You met someone and then you were interested in each other. You were joined by grief and then you had the idea to contribute in some way. It it sounds very organic to me. That is so uh, interesting because it, it was, and I've I've thought about that a lot. As a young woman, I had a strong will, and I would set goals and, and make them happen, and, you know, I was running the show, I thought I was anyway. And uh, the, one of the wisdoms I have as an older person is that to really sit with ideas or intentions and just sit with them to really see if this is what needs to or is is meant to open and if it is the way kind of opens to you or for you and I found that over and over again that you're absolutely right I didn't intend any of this but it's just step by step it's open and it's been a beautiful path a very easeful path out of something that was probably the least easeful thing you've ever experienced at least at least at the start Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, but you know, I just feel in, in many ways Catherine is sort of, you know, guiding me in this. I don't know what I mean by that, but I feel it's come from this deeper intuition or this, this resonated more from a, a head-heart level rather than just the, the head. I, I'm, that's very, very familiar to me. In fact... That's the story of this show in its entirety. Much, much. I never, I never ever could have planned being a radio host. Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Um, it evolved, and it, and I guess if we don't feel we're entirely in charge, then maybe we pay attention to other factors a little more. Uh, and then maybe that that's the truth of it. But I love the um, title of the show, Good Grief. And I, uh, I, you know, part of this whole process is learning to befriend grief. It's to really, rather than push it away and see it as a bad thing and, oh, we should be happy all the time and that's the purpose of things, it's really not. And I've, I've also learned that the, if, if you can go experience that deep grief then there's the other flip side you have the deep joy and happiness you can't have one without the other absolutely i think it's a perfect moment for you to read your poem my friend grief oh okay okay yes because it came out of that thought my friend grief what i like about grief is that she accepts me whatever state i'm in Red-eyed, snotty-nosed, hair matted with sorrow. She doesn't mind if I ignore her, waits patiently to teach me how to be still, how to pay attention. Once she prepared a banquet, spread her best linen cloth threaded with rainbows, lit jasmine-scented candles and invited those I had lost, then pulled out a chair and whispered, Sit, my beloved. Enjoy your guest. I looked around the table, saw my mother, father, sister, daughter, all smiling, and I wept, for I understood with the eyes of a child they had never left 
isn't that just profound the way that at least for me and it sounds like for you the people that I've lost are so present with me and so differently in some sense than when they were actually living yes uh the presence the presence is different it's more maybe uh i don't know no human complication i guess is how i want to put it but well how would you describe that because i hear it in that poem uh-huh, yes, and it's sort of an ongoing exploration in, uh, for me, but I think it, what the, the, these relationships that aren't on this earth anymore, that I still have, they, they um, invite me to, to be the best I can, to show up in the best, the very best way. And, uh, and uh, I don't always, but I, and when I don't, there's a, there's a sense of, you know, I have a dialogue with Catherine or my mom or my father or my sister, um, uh, you know, uh, without it being punishing, but just like, oh, yes, I, I could have done that better. Um, there, there's a sense of an invitation to be the very best you can be. Mm. And I, I don't know what, you know, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing exploration, as I said, for me. I, I I agree with that, and also uh, the sense of a very essential support. For instance, mm. if I'm having trouble in my work, when if I'm not sure what to do, I I actually ask my wife for help. Yes. Now yes. Well, I don't need to know how that works, but mm. it works mm. every time. Yeah, Every and, time and also, something comes that is different from what I might have brought to it with my mind. Yes, absolutely. But And I think the biggest thing for me is that they hold a bigger perspective. The, the fact that my daughter has died, there's nothing, absolutely nothing that would throw me like that did. And so, you know, if I'm having a bad day or the car breaks down or whatever, I can very easily come back to, you know, how bad is this? Or, and it <laughs> yes. brings a, a huge perspective and it, it's, there's a lightness and freedom in living with the fact that you've faced your deepest your deepest heartache. And uh, so Catherine kind of, you know, she's sort of there by my side. And it really, as I move through the world, it's like there's nothing really that important or serious because it's all going to end, you know. And I don't mean that in a depressed way at all. It, it just brings a lightness and joy. It's, it's For me, it was the end of my believing in my anxiety. Yeah. After after she died, I couldn't believe in my anxiety anymore. It just is not really convincing. <laughs> I think that's all the time we have today, Kay, but I've enjoyed this conversation so much, and there were about five other subjects we could have gotten to. Maybe you'll come back when you publish your book of poetry. Thank you. I would love to, and thank you. Absolutely. I I'm I hope we'll keep up with each other. It's been a pleasure to be- to speak with you. Yeah. And you can find Kay at K K A Y E dash Cleave C L E A V E dot com. 
Next week, I'll have Marion Partington, who 20 years after her sister's, her younger sister's disappearance, had her death confirmed and the people who murdered her arrested. In her work to grieve and move forward, she became a fierce advocate for restorative justice, which in a way we've been talking about today, how we restore uh, from from deep uh violent loss, coming to believe we must find a way towards compassion for ourselves and those who harm us. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.